Hello, and welcome back to the Radical Healing Podcast. I'm Erica. And I'm Julianne. In season two, we're doing something a little different. We're interviewing some members of a group of CAJ alumni who are working on bringing to light abuse that occurred some decades ago at CAJ. In a content warning, we will be discussing various types of abuse experienced by children in these episodes. Here's a quote from a 2019 statement from the CAJ Concerned Alumni Committee. On February 6, 2019, a steering committee representing concerned alumni sent a letter to CAJ and its six founding missions. Send, resonate global mission, serve globally, team, world venture, and OMS, calling for resolution of an alleged history of sexual, physical, and psychological abuse that occurred at the school, as well as in its dorms and hostels. They asked for an investigation into the alleged abuse via a reputable, independent, and mutually agreed-upon agency. We will be hearing from survivors and supporters about where this investigation is at today, what we can expect from it, and how they've been building a community focused on truth-telling and healing. If you'd like to learn more about the investigation or context surrounding it, we have more information available on our website at RadicalHealingPod.com. All right, welcome back to the Radical Healing Podcast. Today we have Jan Engholm joining us. We're so happy to have you here, Jan. Uh, Jan uh, was in the class of 1972 at CAJ, and her family was with FEGC, uh, the mission organization now known as SEND. And Jan reached out to us uh, several weeks ago, expressing her interest in being on the podcast after listening to Simon's uh, interviews that we did, uh, wanting to also share her story uh, as an abuse survivor. We're so honored uh, to be able to hear her story and to share it with you all. And just a quick note, if there are any other listeners out there uh, who are also abuse survivors uh, who are also uh, involved in these recent investigations and uh, looking back at this part of CAJ's history. If you would like to be on the podcast, please do contact Erica and me at radicalhealingpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you and to share your story. We are gradually going to wrap up this season of the podcast. So uh, please do reach out to us sooner rather than later so that we can coordinate with you to share your story with others. Uh, it's really important uh, that other people hear. Um, if you are interested in, in sharing your story, it can be a very valuable thing for others to hear. So please do reach out to us. So uh, without any further ado, Jan, could you give a short introduction of yourself? Sure. Jan Engholm. My family went to Japan in 1954. My parents were in their 20s, young 20s, I think, um, with three kids, including the little infant in 1954. So currently, I, am, I live in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, I'm a mother. I have two adult children. I have a granddaughter who's five and a delight. Um, I've been married to my husband for 30, almost 35 years, which sounds unbelievable. Um, I'm currently working at the University of Michigan Hospital in the medical school. 
um, in a program where we help evaluate and kind of prompt medical students to be really good at the communication skills with patients, their future patients. It's a, it's a great program and they're doing really, really well. Um, and now when, whenever we go to the, doc, to the doctor for our own appointments, we're like, they did a really poor job. <laughs> they didn't do this well. So um, that's what I'm doing now. Yeah. So to map out a timeline, you were a child when your parents moved to Japan to be missionaries, right? Yes. And yes. were you at CAJ the whole time? Like you were in Japan? No, I went as an infant. My brothers okay. would have been three and four. Oh, okay. Um, we moved after my parents did quite extensive um, language study, which I think is a great thing that FEGC insisted upon. Mm. Um, then we went to Kofu in the mountains in the Southern Alps, as it called, where we could see Fuji over there. It's a mm. really pretty, pretty town. Um, and then we were there for 10 years. My dad mm. had been there earlier in the army. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I started CAJ. We had a furlough for my personal first grade, my brother's fourth grade and fifth grades. So they went, my brothers went to CAJ from first grade on with a furlough where I started then in second grade at CAJ, my first time there. And um, it was not an exciting experience at all. Um, we went later in the year, I think it was maybe end of October, possibly even early November. And so everyone had gotten to know each other, I think. And it was really terrifying to me as a seven-year-old to be dropped off at the school. My brothers quickly went elsewhere in the school because God forbid siblings should be together. Um, and I think it was dad who had dropped us off, left. Uh, and then it was lunchtime. So I got put into this dining room and there was potato soup, I remember. And I remember that because I threw it up on the ground. <laughs> Unpretty sight. And um, the dining room kind of always scared me thereafter because food and eating was sort of fraught with tension. Mm -hmm. We had to eat everything that was on our plates for some mm -hmm. reason. I was just a little teeny, skinny, anemic thing. I was uh, had pernicious anemia, I think it was. Um, and I did not like to eat much food at all, but to have to eat what big kids, <laughs> the same portions that big kids ate was a real troublesome thing. So mm. I feel like I was sick a lot. My tummy hurt a lot. It was like hard to endure these things. Um, one lovely thing is that the Japanese workers in the kitchen took pity on um, this little girl because I would put my food in the cloth napkin, which get changed only, I think, once a week. So I'd you know, wrap my food in the napkin and then stick it in my cubby hole. And by morning, it would be magically gone. So, you know, they took it, they shook out the napkin, and then they put it back in. It got pretty stinky by the end of the week, but at least there wasn't food moldering each day. Oh, wow. It was kind of a nice little, like, little helper mice <laughs> or something. Wow. 
Interesting. So you, so in the dining room, everyone had a cubby and they had their own napkin, mm-hmm. their own cloth napkin. Mm-hmm. And then it would get washed once a week. I think once a week. Wow. That's very yeah. different. <laughs> It's but I understand a better sustainable that, practice, I guess. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember, I think it must have been my first day at CAJ. I was in third grade and I think I had brought instant ramen as my lunch. And I had to go through the line to get to the hot water, which was very scary just to like be in the line for some reason, mm-hmm. I guess. Cause I was by myself. Um, I think, I think Gretchen Ekstrand was helping me. She was like showing me where to go. Um, <laughs> and I spilled the like water for the ramen on my tray. And I was so embarrassed. And that oh. was the traumatic first day lunch. <laughs> at CHA. Maybe everybody has a story. <laughs> lunch is scary you don't know where to go and there's so many people and where do you sit happening yeah especially when you're new yeah Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. by your time i'm sure it was different because you did not have assigned seats i assume no or cubby holes or cloth napkins (laughs) okay or assigned or potato soup or I'm potato sure soup. I don't remember yeah. potato Ooh. soup. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that would help to have assigned seats. Then it's just less scary mm-hmm. yeah. of where to sit. Yeah. But okay. So going back to the timeline. Um, so then you said you were in Japan for 10 years. And so up to what grade did you attend CAJ? I went through sixth grade. Mm. So we had sixth grade graduation and we went to the U.S. after that, okay. sum- that summer. Yeah, so I love Japan. Really, really love Japan. Um, loved it. I don't know it really well now, but um, I am so happy to have grown up in Japan. It's a really very special country and a unique growing up experience for sure. So even being a TCK third culture kid and a TCK MK, we're pretty special if nothing else, very unusual experiences. Do you identify pretty strongly with the TCK term? Yes. Yes. It was so interesting to come back to the U.S. and feel quite bewildered by the you know, completely different culture where people, <laughs> people knew all about things that I just didn't even know. So I went and it was seventh grade, which was the beginning here of junior high in, in the U.S., or our part. Um, and right away, there's this little quiz that was going around that everybody had everybody had to fill out if you were cool. I definitely wasn't. Um, and one of the questions was, when did you last get a hickey? I was like, oh, man, what's a hickey? <laughs> Is it a hanky? <laughs> a, a dicky? <laughs> I used to wear those funny things. Um, and so I lied and I don't know <laughs> the last time I got a hickey that was this morning is what I wrote <laughs> yeah oh, so it, it was like a paper yeah. note that was being passed around yes, or something yes. oh. <laughs> like a quiz in like a magazine right or yeah, well it's like just that? a piece of paper yeah that, oh okay yeah for, see if you were cool or not well 
yeah, I was not. <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh, more traumas. I, I think with the internet now, there's maybe a little less of a transition or there's just like more pop culture that's easily accessible and yeah. like teen culture is like not universally the same everywhere, but like there's so many shared things now. So I feel like there's probably less of a gap if you're moving countries now. Yes. Hopefully the transitions are easier Mm -hmm. nowadays for kids. But yeah, yeah, back in the day, if you (laughs) don't have internet or have to learn all the slang and yes, exactly. The different like sexual expectations for teenagers where you are just also coming from a small bubble conservative world like CHA it's even more yes. extreme of transition but and in a tiny school like CHA I mean comparatively uh, a school with a small population of students to you know some of you some of us went back to these huge junior highs and high schools and thousands of children and how disorienting that is for anyone, any child. Yeah. Okay. So how do you see the world differently now versus when you were growing up? The world that I grew up in was evangelical. And that's, of course, all that we knew at that time. I see the world very differently now evangelical is one tiny little thing and everything else is a much bigger, much, much bigger thing. So I don't believe in one way. And I think that's the biggest difference is our parents really believed and so many people believe that there is one single way for people to be a born again Christian. And I do not believe that. And anyone who tries to convert me back to that belief I, I it's terribly uncomfortable mm. mm-hmm. yeah so I don't believe in one way mm-hmm. anymore mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I used to yeah I think yeah yeah and uh, yeah along with that how did you feel about being in a missionary environment in particular it's hard to distinguish missionary environment from CAJ, from school. There were parts of the missionary environment that were really kind of wonderful. Like when for our mission, there was this place called Yamanaka mm-hmm. that yeah. we got to go to um, summers. And that was a fabulous week or two in our lives where we were there as families and with other families. And I know our parents loved, loved that time. So, you know, FEGC had Blairs and the Reasoners and the Vickmans and the Baums and the Rhymers and Seabirds, so many, so many um, folks who attended CAJ and were in our mission um, who, who would meet at Yamanaka for fun times in the summer. So there were those um, kind of warm and lovely parts of being in a mission, uh, missionary environment. On the other hand, well, even besides school, I will say that our parents were 
I'm not sure helped a great deal by the mission. And in fact, you know, we're pretty much told to abdicate their role for much of the year as parents of their children by mm-hmm. sending them, requiring them to be the children to be sent to boarding school. FEGC and other missions um, had a lot, of course, a lot of influence. They were our parents' bosses, but our parents still were the ones that had to raise all the money for the next five years to live on for this family of six. It's a, mm. such an interesting way to do things. So they had to do deputizing, is it called? Where you go around every five years for furlough mm-hmm. and then um, go church to church to make get their commitments to mm-hmm. fund the next five years mm-hmm. for the missionary family. And uh, ooh, those church <laughs> for a shy girl to yep. have to get up and sing Sakura wearing our little um, kimonos was like, oh. Yep horrifying mm-hmm. <laughs> or to speak mm-hmm. to speak in front of people i guess it's a thing only mk would understand that experience right <laughs> you always have to wake up early just to get to the church on time mm-hmm. you have to drive far to get there <laughs> yeah you have to I smile mean, at a bunch of people smile perform a little bit yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. don't be unhappy right don't swear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah. were you in the boarding system at CHA or did you live yes. with your parents? Okay. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. Um, no. Uh, Kofu was by train four hours away. Mm-hmm. So for at least part of the five years that I personally boarded there. Um, yeah, that we all boarded there. My sister came up beneath or you know, later than me. And so she didn't have quite as many years as um, Roger, Rudy, and I. We we went home every other weekend. It was mm. strange. It wasn't really seven-day borders and it wasn't really five-day borders. It certainly wasn't day borders, day, day school mm-hmm. kids. Um, so every other weekend. And we would often catch the 4 a.m. train on Monday morning. Oh, wow. To get to school by eight or as close to eight as possible. Yeah. And um, wow. long train ride. And then I know that everybody has their stories of um, the Sunday night, uh, day before you're going to go back to school. Mm. That is just a little mini sorrow, like the end of the summer is such a huge sorrow. Sorrow. Of knowing mm. that you're going to go back for a year to school. Ugh. Wow. Yeah. So I, to me, <laughs> there are all kinds of traumas. And one, one trauma of being a boarder is that there was constant loss. Yeah. Constant loss. And I was thinking the other day of our pets. We had a dog. We always had cats. We oddly had birds, a monkey at one point. Oh, um, my. And I think a bunny. <laughs> Not all at the same time. And birds. And we had to say goodbye to those creatures mm-hmm. as well as our parents. Every other week, oh, just spending one, one weekend mm-hmm. every, other, every other week. So two weekends a month at home and then the rest at boarding school. Just lonesomeness. Yeah, yeah it's a lot of loss. And... <laughs> I don't know. 
maybe people who didn't mind being boarders. I don't know. I I guess I don't I don't understand them. Hmm. I don't know. Do people... Was that something that you talked <laughs> about with the other kids in the boarding? Yeah, I think it was just. Um, I think we all knew those feelings. We all mm-hmm. knew that feeling. Crazy lonesomeness. Yeah, yeah. We many of us cried at night. Mm-hmm. I think boys as well as the girls. I mm-hmm. hear uh, the crazy lonesomeness and homesickness of um, oh, just being a little tiny person yeah. away from your family. And if it was then that you were embraced by loving alter- alternates, alternative family members, that would have been one thing, mm. but the people taking care of us were not loving mm-hmm. people. And in yeah. fact, were, um, were abusers. Yeah. So. Is that something that you talked about with your parents? I think they knew we were lonesome. I never talked about the abuse until I was older, ever. Mm. For I guess all the reasons I've been trying, trying to figure out why people don't don't talk. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, it takes a long time for those disclosures. Can take a long time for those disclosures to happen. Mm. And I think most abused kids talk first with their with their peers, with their friends, mm. with a mm. friend or two. Yeah. Did you do that? Um, yes, a bit. Uh, I remember talking with my friend Janice one during one recess. Oh, I'd gotten in trouble with our dorm parents. So I knew I was going to get punished. But meanwhile, the day had to occur. Punishment would be later. And so I was, uh, we were on the, t- on the playground, um, the platform above a slide, the slides. Mm-hmm. You can stand at the top. And I, oh, I just will never forget. I was saying, I hate her. I want to kill her. I hate her. It was, oh, I felt that so strongly. I was so terrified by her that I hated, I hated the terror, actually. Yeah. And a little girl heard it or a group of little girls heard that. And so I got in further trouble. Oh, my gosh. Because they had, you know, heard me being quite nasty about this dorm person so yeah who i i have a really hard time calling miss fowler because we never called her miss fowler we called her aunt mary Mm. um and if there's anything more insulting than being abused by somebody that you have to call your aunt yeah i don't know what it is yeah it's one of the one of (laughs) one of the things but yeah so she was aunt mary and one thing that the reports from both investigations never really can make clear is how terrifying that woman was to little tiny children she was in charge of first second and third grade girls on one whole side of the dorm of the girls dorm um so it was an enclosed space and she was in charge. She was the dorm, the dorm parent. She was, she was, oh, heart poundingly terrifying to some and maybe not to everybody because I, I, 
remember, in fact, there are pictures taken of, you know, all of us little girls in the dorm in our pajamas and our robes singing, I'm sure it was hymns in the evening, all looking very, very happy. I think you can distort reality when you're a kid, and maybe it's necessary to do that mm. so that you can continue to exist because she was, we were dependent upon her uh, for our caretaking. Mm-hmm. And I was reading something. Oh, what was it? Uh, about um, betrayal trauma. So a person that you are dependent on, it's like the Stockholm syndrome, a person that you're dependent, really reliant on, if they violate you, it's really traumatic. Mm-hmm. But if you do something normal in response, like withdraw or become angry, God forbid, then you really risk being further, further, further wounded, further hurt by that person. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You have to, you have to figure out this kind of dire situation where you have to give in in a way to her. You have, you can't just live angry and scared. Yeah. You have to have times when you willingly put the abuse aside and willingly forget or willingly don't see other people getting hurt because it is for your own survival. And abusers are so smart. They're so wily. They're so smart. Um, And, you know, I think she was, I think she was pretty smart. Just um, how she was able to manipulate lots of little girls into never telling that she was hurting them, spanking them, then whipping them. She kept us all off balance mm-hmm. because you never quite knew when something that you did on that day, which happened to be, say, on a Tuesday, on a Tuesday, you would get in trouble for where you could do the same thing next Friday and you wouldn't get in trouble for it. So yeah. you just never knew mm-hmm. when something was going to be considered valid for punishment. Yeah, it was unpredictable. Very unpredictable. And I think that keeping little kids off balance is a good technique, right? For an abuser. Yeah. (laughs) Well, so let me just say then that Aunt Mary seemed to pick out a few girls to punish more regularly than others. And although I thought I was a pretty compliant little girl, she did not like me, I guess. I don't know. Or the things that I was doing, like reading under the covers at night and memorably comforting a little girl who was younger than me. She maybe was the first grader when I was in second grade and she was a new student. And this little girl was so homesick and was still in the sobbing herself to sleep stage. One night I heard her crying in the next room and went to comfort her. And she, her family were on the train a stop or two either before or after ours. So I knew we would be riding together in a week and a half from now. So I said, you know, it's going to be fine. We're going to be together, you know, get with your parents really soon. Just don't worry. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And the lights came flashing on and there was um, Aunt Mary. And I got in really bad trouble 
for comforting this little child. And when at, at a certain point I stopped, I determined not to cry anymore when I was punished, when I was spanked. She did this bare bottom spanking and then we'd pray. Um, that really apparently angered her so much that I wouldn't cry that she started using this hose that was in a locked drawer in her office room. And that really hurt. And I probably did cry. And almost the most insulting thing of all was then to have to pray and ask forgiveness together, kneeling side by side after being whipped, you know, spanked or whipped, to pray together. It's like, how can you love this religion <laughs> when that happens, right? Um, so I have to parse out all the good parts of religion somehow, or like take the good parts and leave all the bad parts, which are pretty human related, I think. I don't know. It's all so mixed up. Um, Mr. Ryan was fourth grade. So I had Aunt Mary, second grade and third grade, and then graduated to um, Mrs. Collins, who was um, a much better, she was a mom for one thing, a much, much better dorm mom um, for fourth to sixth. Mr. Ryan was a fourth grade teacher. And um, what I remember about him from when I started school at age seven is that he would take the little, littler girls, I guess, we were not that light, seven-year-olds, put us up on his shoulders and kind of prance around the playground with us. And did nobody notice that? I mean, did no grown-ups notice that this man was, you know, I had his hands up under the girls' skirts <laughs> on the playground? I don't get it. Or is that that willing, unnoticing, the unnoticing, because you're so dependent on this institution for your livelihood. I don't know. So he would do that. And then, then he became my teacher. And at some point in the year, um, I ripped, ripped my skirt. So he called me behind his desk. He had a huge desk that he faced the students who were all lined up facing that desk. And he, he called me behind his desk and he, um, he took a big pin and said, I have to fix your skirt. But he did it by putting his hand up under my skirt and then fixed this thing. But then his hands went into my underpants and stayed there. And that happened throughout the year at least a few times. I don't even remember. I just remember it's like a parallel universe just started existing that uh, there was, you know, the time before him and then the time when, oh, my God, now I knew about something down there that was that was mine, but important to him. You know, it was just such a stunning. Didn't even see it as a violation. It was just such a stunning thing. Like, what in the world? And it's a it's a it's a violation that for some reason, brings shame. And the person who should have the shame is that man of God, where the person who gets the shame is the little ones who are molested or raped. I wasn't you know, molested um, and hurt by people of God. So I guess the reason I've gone away from formal religion is Aunt Mary and Mr. Ryan, who did 
things in the name of um, Christianity and in the name of Jesus and God that are untenable. So that's my story. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. I think that's important that people know, you know, what happened. Not everyone was, was, was on Facebook and hearing. (laughs) Yeah. Just, it was just wild because this is the school that I went to, you know, these are these last names. I know these names. Must be so strange for you. Cause there, yeah, there was just nothing during the time that you were there. I had no idea. Well, there were like, things, absolutely yeah. no idea, Riley, that any of this specific stuff happened. Yeah. Over and, and no over concept and over. of what are you supposed to do if you, you know, if this ever happens. No idea of yeah. how to handle it. Yeah, yeah, the idea of threat would be portrayed as always coming from outside the walls of the school. Yes. I think there was some um incident of some guy around Higashikurume who was like flashing people or something like that. And so we had some little assembly for the girls and we were warned about, you know, scary, suspicious Japanese men who would do weird things, you know, but of course, no talk about the possibility of abuse happening in the relationships that we have in the community that we had. Yeah, remember we got taught what to do if you're getting harassed on the train? Oh, those train men, yeah. Which, you know, at least we talked about that, right? Mm -hmm. But yeah, it was only ever, this will be strangers. Mm -hmm. Not someone that you know or someone that is well-regarded in your community. I didn't know about the prayer thing of Mary Fowler and how that just amplifies how terrible it is. And I think that's particular to the Christian culture that we're from. Like what abuser would in other situations in other contexts outside of Christianity is going to pray with That's just such a total mind fuck. Like, yeah. And that's also still perpetuated. I mean, not of course abuse explicitly being mainstream, like promoted, but, you know, Dr. Dobson focus on the family promoting spanking and that's blanket training. There's still that culture that's still strong. And I think that's, I think a Dobbs Dobson teaching that you do pray after you spank the child. I think. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. It is. uh... Yeah. (laughs) So Mary Fowler was one of the abusers that, was named in the reports as in well. The send, in the send report, she mm. was named. She mm-hmm. was mentioned not by name in the Telios report. Mm. You know, why not? <laughs> why not? It's mm. so strange to me. And as much as people try to explain, well, you know, to most people don't name names. It's not mm. typical to name names. It's like Google investigations. And you will find reports where names are named all the time. Criminal, non-criminal. This, these, two, these two investigations were certainly non-criminal investigations. Mm-hmm. There's no reason. Plus, every bleep person was dead. <laughs> They're dead. Mm. Um, and if it's not a criminal investigation, then surely there's no 
uh, defamation mm-hmm. issue. And if they're dead, there's really no defamation <laughs> issue because yeah. they're dead. Ah, so yeah. I wonder, is I, that how Telios operates with their investigation? They just go with this policy of not naming or was it a C, like a CAJ decision? Do you, do you happen to know? I, I don't know. They said that it is important not to name names, hmm. but I find it personally insulting to be told, oh, you know, they can't be named. I'm not saying in any way that any survivor, victim, alumni, any attendee of CAJ should ever be named unless they give permission to be named. I'm not saying that in any way. <laughs> but there, in my opinion, is absolutely no reason why the offenders, the corroborative offenders, should not be named. Naming offenders' names, it's to honor the survivors and the victims, the ones who have survived, and especially the ones who haven't, to actually say out loud, this is the person we hired, Clifford Ryan, who molested many, many little boys and girls. It's Miss Mary Fowler, who, while in our employ, was cruel and punishing and terrifying to little girls that we were responsible for. It's Mr. Bud Young, who we hired, who groomed and had sex with boys who were in our care. I say it's especially to honor the ones who haven't survived because there are far too many from the 50s, 60s, and 70s who sadly passed away far too young from illness, suicide, substance abuse, despair, and send did the name offenders' names. Right. I mean, everybody seemed very amazed about that. Well... And why not? Yeah, I mean, it's such a strange thing for us to just even have an investigation like this. Like, no one really knows what to expect. It just seems, yeah. Well, no one knows what to expect if you're a victim or survivor or alumni of any kind because we were not consulted about these things. Mm. Um we're not represented. We were not consulted. You know, it is not our, in a way, right. our investigation at all. Yeah. 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 Could you share a bit what the investigation process was like for you? I investigated with both SEND and with Telios. They happened to be about a week and a half apart, the two interviews, the send one and the Telios one, they were completely different from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, well, first, let me just go back to the reports for a second, mm-hmm. but naming names. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that full reports should be released. The summer, summary report is how many pages? The Telios one? It's really not eighty. Um, very... Pages much it seems like yeah it's compacted um and the send one oh my goodness was i think 19 pages Mm. (laughs) so very very condensed um some good things that were said for sure in in both actually Mm. but a full neither of these end reports gives really an indication of the of the stories of the Mm -hmm. 
the terror, the shame, the pain, reports that I've read. If you go at the MK Safety Net page mm-hmm. and or just Google investigative reports of boarding schools, you'll just find many. And there are reports are usually some 100 plus pages, 300 whatever pages, and they're boring as all get out. But they talk about this is what happened on this date. And this happened on this date or approximately this period of time, you know, because mm-hmm. so many these um, so many are reports of abuses that were a long time ago, historical abuses rather mm-hmm. than current abuses. What really happened is more detailed in the full reports. Mm. And um, findings are spelled out where they are not in these two reports of CAJ. Yeah, I think I realized when I read um, the Telios one, like I learned a lot just from reading the Facebook page. Yeah. And, you know, people would just comment and share really specific details. Um, and that just kind of combined together to give me a picture mm-hmm. of what happened but like reading the report that I think I wouldn't really understand what happened just from the report because I think it was just the details like things that Mary Fowler did like I think what I remember reading about how she would um like bend down and listen to check if you were breathing (laughs) Uh, if you were I'm sorry if you were sleeping yeah um, <laughs> or breathe. <just> like, <laughs> maybe that's a yeah but like I don't know just like kind of hearing the specific things helped mm-hmm. me get a better understanding mm-hmm. I guess of what happened that if you just read a more abstract report oh, you might not sure. understand exactly and then you know in fact even in the personal findings because when you're when you're um, allegation is corroborated, then you get the statement of findings. And mine regarding Mr. Ryan and Ms. Fowler were corroborated, the um, abuses from them. But, I mean, Mary Fowler was very strict. Here's my paragraph. And Jan felt she abused her power. She made children do chores and public punished them by taking away privileges if they were not done correctly. She punished them if they chatted after, chatted after lights out or read under the covers. That's me. She believes, Jan, believes that they were spanked for this. I don't believe it. I know it. <laughs> Eventually, the spankings escalated and were done with a garden hose about two feet long on the bottom and backs of the legs. Jan vaguely remembers bruises. Well, that's my finding. Um, does that say anything really about it? It, mm. it doesn't say a lot about it. So that was their summary of of what you had shared, but that was kind of yes. their like sanitized version. Well, or you know, reduced onto a paragraph version mm-hmm. where I I would like to know how my reports were corroborated. You know, mm-hmm. is it that my brothers told what they knew because I eventually told my family eventually 
Mm. Um, is it that other girls saw? Is it, I don't know. Yeah, I, I see. Don't know. I'd like yeah. to know. Yeah. So, yeah, tell us about the difference between the two interviews. <laughs> with with Send and then with yeah, Send Telios. and Telios, yes. Um, I interviewed first with Send, two very professional interviewers, Bill Omnis and Autumn. Uh, my friend Barbara, who's a professor at Kent State, came with me for both that interview and this, the Telios interview. Um, I was so grateful that she was willing to do that. And just a little aside is that it is honestly by the grace of really wonderful people in the world and in my life that I'm alive. Mm. I believe that just oh so strongly. And Barbara is one of those <laughs> wonderfuls um, that has kept me alive for sure. Mm. Uh, so she came, she was my support person, as they say. Um, we were treated very respectfully, offered water, and, uh, you know, it was grueling, grueling uh, to give this testimony. And I, um, yeah, uh, hard work. So for several hours. And then, we actually, we started to talk about Mr. Ryan because the SEND investigation was so narrow. It was just regarding SEND FUGC um, faculty mm. and um, people who worked for them. That was their fo uh, focus as those, those particular predators. It wasn't about the FUGC children that were mm. abused anyway that's i guess a whole different part of things so a week later was the interview with telios i was the only one in my family that interviewed with both or with send and with telios i'm not quite sure why but my all my siblings my three siblings and i all interviewed with telios and i was terribly uncomfortable with the interviewer wrote a letter about it afterwards to telios barbara was there again for that as as well for my support person so poor thing has had to sit there for you know four five six hours whatever i felt a very clear bias at times from my interviewer and what did she say I should have just stopped when she said this and said, see you later. Sherry said pretty early on, and these are quotes. So I know you told me you had some therapy, and I'm hoping what you're going to tell me is from your memory. Do you think that therapy has changed your memory of what happened? And that's when mm -hmm. I just should have said um, that sounds so that has implication, you know, you're implying something. Can you tell me what? And um, does that sound biased? Mm. I mean, it does to me. It sounds that either therapy is bad or um, uh, the therapy is going to cause memories. Yeah. And mm. that certainly is something that there are believers in, which I mm -hmm. think has pretty much been debunked, but maybe these are still beliefs that people abide by mm. that there are 
uh, what is re retrieved memories that are false. Mm -hmm. I don't think that it's true. Right. I yeah. Hopeful. I'm, I was kind of hopeful that Christian churches and organizations are more open to therapy, but that comment makes me think that there's still such in deep suspicion of secular therapy. Yeah, mm -hmm. secular therapy. Although, I mean, in the in the summary report, the Telios one, there is mention of all these types of treatment of complex trauma. And it's yeah. interesting. I mean, there are, you know, therapeutic breathing and accelerated resolution therapy, act, art, art, um, hypnosis, somatic experience, like, wow, until a year ago, I doubt anybody ever even, and any evangelical even had heard these terms before. Mm -hmm. um, but maybe I'm being cynical. But um, it does say, Relief may be found in a matter of a few sessions rather than years. It's like, oh, you know, if it <laughs> if it could take a few sessions to get over traumatic experiences, we'd all be there, mm. right? It, an implication that something can be done quickly, effectively quickly, is um, disingenuous mm. and insulting. Mm-hmm. So the Teleos investigation, you felt like the particular interviewer that you had was kind of coming with the assumption that maybe not you specifically, but a lot of people have maybe false memories. And it seemed like with the SEND investigation, the interviewer was better, but the scope of the investigation only focusing on send staff limited what they wanted to hear about? Um, they were willing to hear about Clifford Ryan. Mm -hmm. and because was he willing, was not SEND He was not staff. a SEND person, exactly. They were willing because um, we were all under the assumption that a survivor only had to interview once with one party. Mm. And that the interview um, tapes would be shared between the two oh. investigations. I'm not sure that ever happened. I don't know. May maybe it did. But I, I just couldn't even, after those hours with the send one, I said, you know what? I'm being interviewed next week and it'll be about Mr. Ryan too. So I will just. I see. You decided uh, like. Uh, yes, to I decided. Just, yeah. 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 Shouldn't okay. have. Because I think that the sent interviewer, at least in my case, interviewers were um, far more like trauma uh, informed. informed people, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that is critically, critically important in a investing in interviews of course you, uh, well you would say of course one would think of course because the person if you're an interviewer the person that you're sitting across from and interviewing is not just the 60 year old person it's the seven year old person who's sitting right there beside her mm. the one that got hurt and that still is hurt that's who's being interviewed so if, you know, if your mind goes all over the place, if you, if you sweat and your heart pounds and you have to 
run to the bathroom or you're uh, or you can't think or like what 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 I just can't think of that one thing and you remember it two days later those are things that would be understood by someone who who knows how to um, really interview adult child abuse survivor mm-hmm. and they get more information they would get better and more information than a person like the person who interviewed me for Telios, who there was a point where I realized, wow, I don't like her. I'm not giving her anything else. I don't want to, I don't want her. I don't want her to know any of my business anymore, Mm. you know, and I don't know, should have walked out. Maybe, I don't know. Um, Clearly was not effective, at least for this person. So she didn't get the information that she could have. And you wrote a letter. Yeah. And did anything come of that? Yeah, I think there was a, oh my, we're really sorry. And we'll, you know, try to try to make sure, I don't know, to do better. But But it sounded like you were thinking that it wasn't just this interviewer, but maybe also um, this person um Teresa I don't know how to say her last name <laughs> side bottom I think yeah <laughs> that was maybe a bigger problem I think there are some biases on her part historically in some of her writings and um I mean some some things are just such hearsay it's it's things that are written on blogs by MKs that have experienced um dealing with her I have read some things that personally uh, leave me kind of gasping. um, Things that she has written herself. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. That um, to me clearly show certain biases about things. On the other hand, I do need to say that, you know, one thing that I read a paper was written in 2017. That's, you know, that's five years ago. Another was written in 2011. And that was a long time ago. So I guess people can, people can change and hopefully Teresa has changed. I think that Debbie and Brenda um, in their working on behalf of alumni during the investigation process might've really been able to make, make some headway, make some changes or noticed some change, you know, maybe helped her progress. Mm Mm-hmm. So can you explain again, what was Teresa's role in the investigation? Her firm, Telios, was hired to have an independent investigation, historical investigation. So she was in charge. She's, she's the head of the firm. She was in charge of everything about the investigation. And you read online how she has done previous investigations and there were some people like MKs that were involved that were also maybe concerned about things she said or did. Mm-hmm. I have I have read and heard things, and I don't know is that maybe hearsay stuff. <laughs> to me, I is I trust what I read, and there are things that she has written, papers that she's written. She seems very intellectual. That. It's yeah. just so disturbing. So, you know, maybe maybe she's changed. Well, 
Maybe well, she's changed. <laughs> of course. Of course. But she's the head of the investigation. And so the biases from the person who heads up the investigation are going to be meaningful. They're going to filter down. And also recognizing that this was not any investigation that was for alumni and survivors. This was an investigation paid for in both case, both investigations paid for by the school and missions. Right. Um, so I wonder if you want to talk about just, for example, this, I don't know how to go document that she wrote called the blood of the martyrs and legal liability. Would that be helpful to just briefly talk about that? Just to mention it. Yes, because when I read it, it was, um, you know, disturbing. So, yeah. So can you explain like, what is this document? I guess. Well, one document is called The Blood of the Martyrs and Legal Liability. It is um, oh, subtitled Challenges to Mission Organizations. I think the, the bent is, you know, to protect mission organizations, which is a worthy cause, I guess, but not to the exclusion of the people who are affected by those institutions, the children who have been affected wrongly by those institutions. So, the person who interviewed me who seemed to directly have an issue about memory, recovered memory, you know, is this continuous memory or is this, is this something put in your head by a therapist? Is, I know what she was meaning, but um, so this article says many memories of alleged victims are recovered years later rather than continuous which casts great doubt on their reliability. Various groups and websites may promote healing in some cases, but also may be encouraging a victim culture. If so, this provides fertile ground for lawsuits. That's a, well, WTF. <laughs> There's a scenario, that she, a scenario that she suggests, you know, could, could happen in a mission. It's this, a former and now middle-aged MK had an unhappy time in boarding, in boarding school. In recent years, she has heard that other students in the boarding school were sexually molested. After meeting with the other students and participating in an MK blog, she has recovered memories that she was molested as well. She joins other students in suing, saying that the mission had noticed that the staff member might be abusing kids and did not take action. I'm trying to like kind of wrap my head around what's going on here. And I mean, repressed memory stuff. It reminds me, I have gotten interested in the phenomenon in, I guess the eighties and nineties, that's now called the satanic panic. Um, it seems like it was a time when there was this idea that there's maybe secret groups or scary strangers that are abusing, especially children. And there was this one particular therapist who sort of convinced the woman he was therapizing that she had like experienced all of these like crazy satanic rituals. I mean, and he wrote a book about it and it's not at all an academic book, but it sort of, spread in popularity and it seemed like there was this moment in time when 
some people were um, going to therapy and I don't know, would say, you know, like it was also like police investigating accusations of satanic rituals and police interviewing like four year old kids and somehow would get these stories about all the crazy stuff that the daycare workers were doing to the Mm. four year old kids, like really wild, you know, imagination stuff of like ritual sacrifice of animals and things. And so I think that there's, was this fear that therapists will draw false memories, right? Uh, and that, and that there, yeah, there was like weird stuff going on about like repressed memories or fake memories. But looking back, I think some of it I have heard was a lot of miss, uh, what do you call it? redirection? This was a time when, for example, there was a lot of abuse happening in the Catholic Church, but the satanic panic was focused on like, oh, it's daycare workers or it's like people who play Dungeon and Dragons or it's people who listen to rock music. Those are the people to be scared of. Don't worry about your local Catholic priest. And so for somebody today to be really worried about like therapists putting false memories into people. I don't know if it's going back to that. Um, But also for, yeah, for someone to be so focused on like, well, these are the, these are some scenarios that might happen instead of like just documenting all of the real abuse that has happened. Yeah, what a what a telling sign of like who you're really concerned about. I don't know. I'm just trying to wrap my head around what I'm hearing. Yeah. And who's who's to protect? Are you protecting children yeah. and what happens exactly. to them or are you protecting the institutions with the people yeah. in them that are hurting children? And know. we're just finding out now how many missionary schools have harbored terrible abuse we know it's a thing that has happened many places to many people but your concern is oh no what if somebody gets sued first yeah for someone like Teresa to be more concerned about protect yourself against lawsuits as opposed to oh no we it looks like there was a lot of abuse we need to make sure that we I don't know, uncover everything that happened and make sure it never happens again and support Mm -hmm. all the survivors. I mean, the whole uh, investigations are interesting because there are internal investigations, which I guess SEND kind of was, which can't possibly be really independent if they're doing it themselves. I mean, they hire outside investigators, but they're in the driver's seat. Um, And then so-called third-party uh, independent investigations, but when the paying clients are the people getting investigated, then there's something just um, yeah. There's always that just, question of where the where the money is coming from, um, and, who, and who's being protected exactly. And also, yeah. I think religion does play a role in it. Telios is a Christian, explicitly Christian law firm. Teresa mm-hmm. is a 
dedicated evangelical Christian and who we'd hope that she doesn't have biases, but if you are a Christian, you do want to protect the church and Christian organizations. Uh, mm-hmm. Going back to the belief that there is only one true way, you know, they, you have a big incentive to want to protect these institutions. Um, yeah. Just personally, maybe those are implicit biases that I, I don't know how you could root, separate yourself from them if you're a very yeah. religious person. Like that. Too often there's but, like a defensiveness because it's like, well, if this Christian organization did this really bad thing, what does that say about like Christianity? Christian and I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to have to deal with that. So they must have not done anything too bad. Right, 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 exactly. Well, I don't, I don't know about investigations. Just at the very base is, um, you know, who pays, and yeah. so is a really true, effective, truly effective investigation only one that is brought on by what um, the Boston Globe, maybe investigative reporters who will presumably be non-biased and really here here to be able to tell the truth. Here's why it matters so much. Keep in mind that it was a specific request of concerned alumni that a mutually agreed upon agency should head up the investigation. That did not happen. And Telios, the agency that was hired to investigate abuses at CAJ and is paid by the very institutions being investigated, has as its mandate the protection of religious entities from harm from litigation. If the head of that agency, the lead person at Telios, has bias about a culture of victimhood against retrieved or non-continuous memories, or even bias about therapy itself, then those biases will inform the investigation, the decision to withhold names of abusers, decisions about which allegations can be corroborated or not about what to include and what not to include in a report or about making a making public a full report. Those are all decisions that will skew results. 39 cases of abuse were corroborated over a period of 43 years, according to Telios, including ugh, one case of emotional abuse, which is absurd. There were allegations that were shamefully, shamefully not corroborated, even though the pattern of abuse by the perpetrators was firmly established. Can you uh, explain a little bit more about just this one case of emotional abuse? There's a table of allegations and um, table of abuses that's in Mm -hmm. the report. Mm -hmm. And it's a little teeny tiny table. And of all the, the several abuses that are included, there were two cases investigated of emotional abuse, and one case was corroborated. Mm. I find that so, so odd. I mean, why, mm-hmm. even, why even put it in? Because it all was emotional abuse. Mm-hmm. Right. And so why even distinguish that there were yeah. Two investigated cases. Yeah, well, that's just make kind of sense to me. it's confusing to someone who's reading the report. Yes, like what does this mean? That <laughs> emotional abuse was not an issue. Yeah, or people didn't feel comfortable sharing it, or just well, we can't corroborate it, so you know, 
kind of leaving it out. Yeah. Oh, might as well just leave it out in yeah. my opinion. Yeah. Mm, interesting. Yeah. 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 I know. So those allegations that I think are, it's so shameful. were not corroborated is sad to me because I think that really hurts people who did bring forth an allegation mm-hmm. um, to find that there's was not, e- even though the pattern of behavior by the, by the abuser was firmly established, um, they still somehow ended up not being, co- co- having their uh, allegation not corroborated. Mm-hmm. And um, that's, that's sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When somebody looks at a report, they want to see, you know, they want to know exactly what happened, who did it happen to, by whom, who knew about it, and what was done about it. So people will pick up a report, look at the table of allegations, and then read the, the few paragraphs about leadership culpability and come away thinking, wow, what, what was the big deal? Mm. I believe that the full reports and not just the summary summaries of both investigations must be made public. Let us make our own conclusions. Let us come to our own conclusions that every voice and every story and each instance of abuse be told and be heard. There's a mention that truth should be brought to light. That was in several things in the report and in letters. I think that having the full reports will show we'll really be able to bring truth to light and not just partial truth mm-hmm. into a partial light. On the plus side, I do want to say of the Tellius investigation, a really unprecedented feature was included, and that's the addition of an alumni perspective throughout the entire investigation, largely largely spearheaded by Debbie Rhodes and later joined by Brenda Seat. They spent untold and unpaid hours and hours working on behalf of CAJ alumni to give alumni a voice in the investigation. Among other things that Debbie and Brenda did is they created a really powerful PowerPoint presentation that they gave to the investigators, to the review panel, to CAJ and many, if not all of the missions, possibly maybe all by now. Debbie and Brenda were aided in their efforts in that PowerPoint presentation by some alumni who lent artistic and other skills. Just kind of amazed by how all of the survivors and alumni kind of did this informal investigation it seems like of just sharing stories with each other like oh this happened to you this happened to me like were you part of that I don't know if it was at a reunion or just like conversation with other survivors where you were kind of maybe finding out what all was going on make like making those connections yes absolutely and I feel like those were being I feel that stories have been talked about for many, many decades. And oh, cle- okay. Clearly not heard or <laughs> heard, but not um, nothing is done. Oh, uh, that okay. is, I don't know. Also, another thing, I don't know, insulting, disingenuous is 
t- for the school commissions to say, we just found out about all this stuff in was it 2018 or 2017? Mm. You know, we got this, got this one story, this one letter. And then, oh my goodness, another one. And then bless Janet Oates, Pape Oates, who really, you know, pushed and pushed and pushed for things to open up. It is not 2017 or 2018 when CAJ and the missions learned about abuses. Mm -hmm. Abuses have been talked about at every single reunion, sometimes quietly in a corner. Parents wrote letters in the 60s. It was a, I think, even in the telling a summer report, it says that it was because of two parents that two perpetrators were dismissed. And so that was in the 60s, you know, so they knew somebody knew something. Well, right. Clifford Ryan was essentially very quietly sort of fired, right? And the same with with Mary Fowler. I believe she was dismissed. Okay. And then uh, Bud Young was, I don't know. I don't know. I wasn't, I wasn't (laughs) there at that time. I guess he was dismissed. Okay. So, yeah. So people knew, but it was still sort of kind of officially unrecognized, maybe. Officially unrecognized. Things, things were not, yeah, things weren't done. So I mean, they can say we didn't know in until 2017 or 2018 and that's just lying because they did know because people were dismissed as a result it's just that nothing was done so they could say in 20 in uh, 1965 we just didn't do anything yet and then in 2000 at the 50th caj 50th anniversary reunion my family went my dad my two brothers and my sister and i and i had spent a few months working on something, I just felt compelled to get up and say. And so at one of the meeting thingies um, during that reunion with, I don't know, 50 people maybe there, uh, my sister and I both got up and we talked about our experiences of abuse. And my mind goes blank then (laughs) because one person who was there said, yeah, then Mr. Essenberg kind of, you know, of course knew our dad who was on, had been on the board a few years, um, took you guys, you know, and walked down, I remember walking down the pathway from, from wherever the, the meeting place was, and you all went for dinner. Wow, I just, I honestly do not remember that, but um, vaguely also, I remember that sometime after that, I got a letter from somebody at CAJ who gave what I remember thinking was a terribly patronizing, you know, there, 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 it's okay. Sorry, that so sorry that happened to you, but, um, you know, thank you for telling us about it. And that's that. And mm-hmm. nothing was ever done or heard. But uh, to say, you know, these reports in the last few years are the only reports that ever were is just not true. It's so not true. Ah, maddening. So... It is our warrior goddess, Janet Pape Oates, who got the investigative ball rolling in the first place. Nothing would have happened without her efforts and her persistence in demanding an investigation into the abuses at CAJ. 
Um, I also want to say that I personally believe there are people who have not come forward to tell about their own abuses or things that they've witnessed. And it's, I guess I just would like to say why I believe it's important that that stories are told and why stories are heard. We talked a little bit about you, know, the, you can read a report and wonder, oh, what happened again? <laughs> what, what really happened? Because it doesn't tell. But to tell your story, that people who were abused want someone to actually know about the hurt that was done to them and to have it matter. If we don't tell our own stories, we give permission for our stories to be told by others or remain untold. And it is part of healing to have stories told for me to tell my story, for others to tell their stories. It's also part of um, what needs to be actually heard in the ears of those who make decisions or those who don't believe that abuse has happened or can't quite comprehend what the abuses were at all. It's important to hear what really happened. Mm -hmm. I guess a two-part question. Do you feel like something is being done now slash what do you think should be done? In the report, it said that Tellius report, well, both reports are next steps to happen. And I don't know who is spearheading the creation of these things that are named you know, a memorial, a um, counseling fund. We'll even go into that. There was some, some, I think, something about curriculum, curriculum for current changes. students. Yeah. So I don't know if CAJ, some, I don't know if ANDA is responsible for implementing the things that were proposed and that the school and the missions have said that they will do these things. I don't know. I mean, she's retiring. Right. The future headmaster, yeah. whoever they are. Yes. Or is it someone that collectively is hired to be the, the point person to make sure that this happens or to implement these things to happen? I don't know. Uh, nobody seems to have heard anything right now. And that's kind of like, oh, don't just be silent. Don't just go silent. Just give some updates mm -hmm. to say, yes, we care about these next steps that we claimed would happen. Here's a little progress or here's a report of no progress, but we're, we're still doing it. I was just checking the Facebook group, the CAJ Abuse Survivors yeah. Support Group. And the latest update from Debbie was that the school's working on the memorial mm. and, and as interested in what survivors and supporters would like the message on the memorial to be and what it would look like. Mm -hmm. And then Teresa is working with alumni to design a survey about the retreat and is also finalizing therapy funding structure with input from a trauma-informed psychologist. And who's doing that? I'll, I'll so last two, this uh, Teresa, that oh, I guess Teresa okay. is finalizing the th therapy funding structure. Okay. So Telios is staying with the investigation it's, into this next stage, it sounds like. Sounds like it, yeah. Okay. Yes, I'm curious what the memorial would, would be like. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. In the big thing called healing, when you're a survivor. There are some things that have been really helpful for me and for others 
that I've talked with, we've all tried to compile some resources, articles and books, some wonderful, wonderful, amazing books. Like for one, the book Scent about the Chifu Reflections on Mission, Boarding School and Childhood is, um, I think it's from Chifu, yeah. Um, Chifu Boarding Schools. And this is a book written by 86 or 68 stories of these now adult kids that once you realize, wow, other people went through this, a whole bunch of missionary kids went through this. That is very enlightening. And you just can kind of bloom when you realize, oh my God, I am not alone. And I think so many people feel so alone when they've never talked about their experiences as an abused person. One other thing for myself personally, besides having all these wonderful people in my life, one group of amazing people is that we have started this cohort. And we, after a few sessions, someone said, oh, there's a book called Kintsugi. Kintsugi, do you know that term? Yeah. Uh, um, Finding Strength in Imperfection. Kintsugi is the art of basically healing broken things with gold seams. It's a lovely concept. So we informally have named ourselves the Kintsugi Sisters. We meet every other week and anyone who would like to start a cohort of their own, I think it's so valuable. I wish our parents had had such a thing (laughs) when they were far away and lonely. I wish we'd had such a thing in boarding school, my word. But um, it's a wonderful resource to have people who have experienced so many of the same things in the same place. You can speak without even talking because everybody knows exactly what you're talking about You know, because you've been there. I'm sure that you have experienced that together and with your own friends and classmates. You just get it. Everybody gets it. We don't always see eye to eye. We do meet every other week, but um, we do admire and respect each other a lot. It's It's been very helpful, just really helpful. Like just a session on talking about your mother, our missionary mothers. There have been some real paradigm shifts in our perception of our missionary parents. Just huge shifts in perception, how we view our parents. And that's been really lovely, I think. Hmm. So each time you meet, there's like a discussion topic that sort of Uh, guides, or is it more casual, formal, uh, informal? Some weird hybrid of all of the above. (laughs) (laughs) So sometimes, you know, we've tried some formal, let's let's have this session be about blah, blah, blah. And then sometimes it's it's very much more informal and some people really like that informality, others do not. So it's a work in progress for sure, mm. but um, has been two and a half years, I think. Well, 47 cohorts, so 20 every other week. Anyway, a long time. Yeah. That's wonderful that yeah. you have each other. Yes. And this you, is something that you meet in person or online? No, it's Zooms. Yeah. Yeah. In I fact, think... only a few of us have ever actually met in person. Yeah. Know each other. Yeah. It's kind of incredible how <laughs> we've sort of found ways to, yeah, I guess ha- have these like connections, even if you are not living in the same area, you can still have these sorts of get togethers. 
Yeah, exactly. It's kind of wonderful. Of course, we're all, you know, on the same level. We're all these little squares and a little person is in each of those <laughs> squares. So the other day I said, by the way, when we do meet in person, I just want to know, like, how tall are all y'all? Yeah. How tall are y'all? I'm 5'2". I'll be yeah. the shrimp over there. And some are tall and some are, because we're all the same height on Zoom. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm a big proponent of therapy, but I think there's something really special that can only happen like as a group, like with other people that maybe can't happen if it's just a individualized therapy session, like something about that collective yeah, presence and mm -hmm. processing together and healing together, I think is really powerful. Definitely. Yeah. And when you're speaking the same language, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Healing takes a lifetime, but there are resources. Trauma-informed therapy is one. Cohorts, helpful books and articles and podcasts like this one. <laughs> Prayer, wonderful people sprinkled through your life. And here's a personal shout out to my wonderful husband and children and brothers and friends who are some of those wonderfuls. Mm. According to Child USA, the average age for an adult to report their child sex abuse is 52 years. So think about that. Long after most statutes of limitation are passed, is when many people are finally able to tell what happened to them, to process it. Fear, shame, and self-blame are the main inhibitors to disclosure. You know, reports can be amended and might need to be. If you're ready, if you are now ready and age more than 52 or younger mm -hmm. than 52, you can come forward, you can have your story listened to, have your story matter. And by the way, scratch an MK and you'll likely find a missionary, religious or secular. I guess I'm a secular missionary and feel strongly about these things. <laughs> okay, so explain more. What do you mean by secular missionary? Do you find that a lot of missionary kids have this sort of zeal about various things, whether it's protecting animals or being missionaries, religious missionaries themselves, or really believing strongly in justice and, um, you know, wanting to make things better for in the world. Mm -hmm. I think we were raised that way. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think it affects you when you are raised from birth to have a mission for your life. Yeah. And to have like that responsibility that I'm not just living for myself, but I'm supposed to be doing something with my life. And maybe sometimes that can be harmful, but I think that has definitely absolutely shaped who I am today. Yeah. And yeah, if people think that I'm too radical, well, it's your fault. You made me this way. <laughs> so there, parents, <laughs> listen well. Yeah. Oh. yeah. Great. So we will post some of the resources that you mentioned. The, we'll include a link to the book Scent 
Uh, yeah, I, I started reading one, that one. For sure. yeah. It's it's interesting because I appreciate that they have diversity of voices to some people who are still very evangelical and others yeah. who have gone off that route. And I appreciate that there wasn't like a Christian agenda or something like that necessarily. It was just people to freely share about their experience. Yeah. yeah. So there's a, a school-wide reunion in san diego area san diego i think in uh february of a year from now Seth? about a year from now which is very interesting because i think it will perhaps be more inclusive than um alumni gatherings have been at other times i'm hoping because hmm. this investigation you know it's kind of front and center in our brains for a while anyway hmm. Um, for the last little while. At the one I attended, not the big CAJ 50th one in 2000, but one in 07, there was some emailing back and forth before meeting. And there were some people saying, you know, I just can't take these prayer meetings that are so appealing to people. And somebody else wrote back, well, you know, we were a Christian school. And so, of course, we're going to do Christian things. And I was thinking, well, one of my best friends at CAJ was definitely not an evangelical Christian. There are so many of us who no longer identify as evangelical Christians. Just because we're a Christian school doesn't mean that we all adhere, you know, we all love the, <laughs> the same Christian rituals. And in fact, if I have to go into a church, if I have to sing a hymn, I don't ever have to. But if I go to a church, I get almost sick to my stomach. It hurts me that badly. And a person who was a man of God is who, you know, and a woman of God are people who hurt a little girl to the point where I can't go into a church. That's a lot of awful abuse, right? This one other thing too is that for anybody who's been abused, it's only one part of who you are. It's a really big part, but it's only one part. We are so many other things as well. We are so much more. It feels so, I don't know how, I don't know what's the word, but so good to be able to have open, honest conversations when I think, you know, sort of the culture that we come from, if anything doesn't portray us in a good light, then we just can't talk about it. <laughs> like, yes, it's just so refreshing sure. to just be able to have an open, honest conversation and not worry about oh, no, did I bring something up that's supposed to remain hidden? Well, I am that's a little it. bit feeling that way. <laughs> Maybe I have. I don't know. There's one image that I really had wanted to um, just say because it has stayed in my own mind so much about a parent. And that is that there was a little girl whose parents, I think, were pretty strict and not real outgoing affection. She took the train to um, school, a kind of long train ride. And one, her dad would walk her to the train station and then she'd go off on the, or even maybe with her dad, go travel together. But one, one day she realized she'd forgotten something as they were walking to the station early, early in the morning. She ran back to the house to get what she'd forgotten she saw her mother with her 
the mother had her apron up over her head and she was sobbing. And there is something about that image of this mother stoic, and I'm not going to show extra undue affection to my child or feel sorry for her, but when she was all by herself, she sobbed for the loss of her daughter. Mm. And that just is such a striking image to me of all these, oh man, nobody was unscathed in those days, I think, Mm. including our little pets. Yeah. To say bye all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Thank you all for doing this. Thank you so much. Really good. Yeah. Thank you so much for telling us everything. Okay. All right, you guys. Thank you, Jen. All right. Good night and good morning. All right. Good night. night Rest well, everyone. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Radical Healing Podcast. This podcast is made by Erica Hughesby and Julianne Picardo with music by Marlos Townsend. You can find and subscribe to Radical Healing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For information and more resources, check out our website, RadicalHealingPod.com, and follow us on Instagram at RadicalHealingPod. We're always looking for more people who'd like to share their story, whether it's about the CAJ experience, growing up international, or radical healing. If you'd like to get in touch, send us an email at radicalhealingpod at gmail.com.